Welcome to Blog Talk Radio in high fidelity. Welcome, everyone. This is Greg Masters, Managing Director at Health Innovation Media and the publisher of ACOWatch.com. And for the fourth year in a row, Health Innovation Media was privileged to cover the Florida Association of ACO's annual meeting, interviewing keynote faculty, session moderators, and other key industry luminaries. In this segment, Todd Park shares his insights on the volume-to-value journey. Todd is former Chief Technology Officer at the Department of Health and Human Services, a co-founder at Athena Health, and currently serves as co-founder at Devoted Health, a Medicare Advantage contractor that leverages technology into risk-bearing health plans serving the Medicare market. Following Todd's remarks, he moderates a panel discussion with Rich Luchabella, CEO of Accountable Care Options, John Harkins, Executive Director at Broward Guardian ACO, and Lewis Morganier, CEO, Healthcare Development Partners, all high-performing South Florida-based ACOs. For more information on Flacos or Devoted Health, see the program description on our channel at blogtalkradio.com forward slash healthtechmedia or follow via at Flacos and at Devoted Health, respectively. And now for Todd. Hello! <laughs> How's everyone doing? Great. Fantastic. It is wonderful to see everybody here today. Uh, massive thanks to Nicole and to Flacos. We're having a little bit of debate at our table. Is it Flacos or Flacos? And Nicole definitely answered the question. It's Flacos. 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 So huge thanks to Flacos for inviting me to be here. It's a true joy to be here at what we consider to be one of the metaphysical epicenters of healthcare innovation in the United States. Uh, the topic of this keynote is from volume to value. I suspect it's a keynote that every single person in this room could give, as each of you has contributed significantly to the value-based care movement and is driving this movement forward as we speak. Each of you knows how existentially important it is to the future of America that we shift our healthcare system from paying for volume to paying for value. Each of you knows that this is a shift that will empower providers to actually be able to implement and execute systems and approaches that will achieve highly coordinated, proactive, prevention-oriented care for patients, the right care in the right place at the right time, which as we all know, as we all know, both improves outcomes and lowers costs, and which when implemented at scale will save an enormous number of American lives, will heal an enormous number of American lives, and represents the single best way of making healthcare costs sustainable. My own personal journey of discovery about value-based payment and care began at the very beginning of my work in healthcare 20 years ago. Uh, after stint uh, working as a consultant to health insurers, I co-founded with Jonathan Bush, my brother Ed Park, Athena Health in 1997. Today, Athena Health is known as a healthcare software and services company. But what a lot of people don't know is Athena Health's origin story. We actually founded Athena originally not as a dot-communist internet company, but rather a company focused on dramatically improving maternity care 
for the indigent. We discovered when we were just little kids running around in our early 20s, a, an incredible model of maternity care called the collaborative care model, which folks may have heard of, in which OBs, certified nurse midwives, care coordinators, social workers, uh, edu educators, nutritionists, team up to provide highly proactive, coordinated, holistic care upfront for mom through prenatal care and all the way through labor and delivery. Uh, the best American practitioner of this model of care at the time was a practice called OBGYN Consultants and the Birthplace in San Diego County. A five-year-old federal study on this practice demonstrated that uh, while its collaborative care model costs somewhat more to operate up front versus traditional OB care, the collaborative care model reduced costs for a global OB episode across all physician, uh, ancillary, and hospital spending, reduced global costs by 20% net by sharply reducing the rate of C-sections, complications, NICU admins, et cetera. It delivered better outcomes, happier mamas, bouncier babies, through a proactive, coordinated, holistic care model, made patients much happier, and as a side effect, cut costs by 20%. Does this pattern sound familiar to anybody in this room, right? Better care drives lower costs. We were thrilled to discover this collaborative care model, actually implemented by OBGYN consultants in the birthplace, and so we bought that practice out from a local health system and sought to take this model nationwide. We were ready to go. And here's what actually happened. We met with payers. We proposed a partnership in which they would pay us a global episodic case rate for maternity care covering all physician, hospital, ancillary costs. And we said, look, just compute what it cost you last year, what you think it'll cost you this year, and take 10% off. Right? We'll give you a 10% savings guaranteed up front. That'll be your global case rate. And payers said, look, we, we believe that your clinical model is better. It sounds fantastic. But we cannot and will not change how we pay for healthcare just for you. And recall that we had bought this practice out from a local health system, which turns out had been subsidizing it. And it turns out that on its own two feet, due to the added upfront expense of the collaborative care model, it was losing a million dollars a year. And in a desperate attempt to save it, and without the ability to be paid global episodic case rates, we pulled out all the stops, and among other things, invented the first cloud-based software to run doctor's offices, and the next generation billing service powered by that software to help doctors get paid faster and at much less cost, which then became the foundation of what Athena ultimately became, an internet-based software and service company. But we failed to scale and promulgate our original vision, which was to spread this life-saving, baby-saving, life-improving collaborative care model for moms across America. Why? Because in the late 90s, we couldn't get the payers to partner with us on a global risk basis. That was the barrier. It wasn't because the doctors didn't want to do it. It wasn't because the nurses didn't want to do it. It wasn't because it was the wrong idea. It was because we couldn't get paid for value. And as a result, mothers died, babies died, mothers got sick, babies got sick, because that couldn't happen. And that became for me at the age of 25, my first and most searing experience of the truth that how you pay for healthcare dictates how it will be delivered. Unless we change how we pay for healthcare, unless we move from fee for service to pay for value, pay for prevention, pay to keep people healthy, healthcare providers are literally shackled. It is fiscally incredibly difficult or impossible for them to move to the care models that doctors and nurses know are the optimal ones for patients, which both optimize outcomes and lower costs. 
So ever since that formative experience in San Diego in the late 1990s, I've been incredibly passionate, if you can't tell, about the imperative to move American healthcare from volume to value. While Athena Health's initial success business model was, as I mentioned, focused on effective management of the fee-for-service revenue cycle, we added an electronic health record offering and other components over time in the hopes that this broader offering would ultimately someday, hopefully, help providers make the move to effective management of value-based payment and care. When I was subsequently drafted by the American government for a tour of duty in public service several years ago, I and teammates of government started something called, as the next phase of work on this issue, the Health Data Initiative to help fuel value creation in healthcare. I'm excited to see Paolo and Greg and other pioneers of that movement uh, here in the room. It's a fantastic surprise that they're here. I'm ecstatic. Um, basically, what we were asked to do uh, was to figure out how to optimize social return on massive taxpayer investment in huge amounts of data that was sitting in the vaults of CMS and the FDA and NIH, et cetera. And the conclusion we reached was that basically uh, the solution wasn't for the US government to itself come up with all the uses for this data, but rather to take a page from a play, a playbook that the government had actually used in the past, a uh, play that the government had run with weather and GPS data. Uh, decades ago, the US government's National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which collects virtually all meaningful weather data, decided to make that data freely available to the public and the private sector. Data which then became fuel for all kinds of interesting services like weather news and weather insurance and weather apps and much more. Similarly, the US government actually built the GPS system not so we could figure out how to get to the local you know, grocery store, right? But rather for the military, right? Uh, but subsequently decided to open up GPS for commercial use, which led to an explosion, as we all know, of private sector innovation. In fact, it's estimated that just opening up weather and GPS data for private sector use actually has added $100 billion annually to our GDP with zero incremental expenditure of taxpayer dollars beyond what we already actually spent on GPS and weather, and uh, innovations which have improved the lives of Americans in all kinds of ways, generated through this data liberation. So the idea behind the Health Data Initiative was to replicate this data liberation, uh, this time leveraging the vast stores of data sitting in the vaults of CMS, NIH, FDA, et cetera, with, of course, the proper privacy protections for particular data sets. The thinking was that innovators of all stripes could leverage the data combined with other data and their ingenuity and their tools and their effort and their capital to come up with ideas that never would have even occurred to the US government to do, let alone been within the government's ability to execute those ideas. One of my favorite laws of the universe uh, is called Joy's Law. Folks heard about, you guys probably know Joy's Law. <laughs> Does uh, anyone else here know what Joy's Law is? Joy's Law, named after Bill Joy, who coined it, he was the founder of some microsystems. He said, look, you have to remember something really important when doing anything. No matter who you are, you have to remember that most of the smartest people in the world work for somebody else, mm. not for you, right? So the best way for the US government to unlock maximum social value from its data was not for it to hoard it and use it itself, but for it to make it available for all the other people in the world to use. And among other critically important uses, as providers increasingly moved into value-based payment arrangements, the Health Data Initiative sought to make data available, more and more data available, that would help providers succeed in delivering value-based care uh, via the data itself as a help or tools built by innovators <laughs> that could help them, like Nicole. Uh, I'll never forget the first time we really engaged the entrepreneurial community on this Health Data Initiative idea. Uh, we basically invited 40 entrepreneurs uh, to a gathering hosted by the Institute of Medicine. 
uh, to pitch them on the idea of the government opening up data for them to use to make healthcare better. Um, uh, these entrepreneurs began the day in, a, in an extremely skeptical frame of mind. They could not imagine how the U.S. government could be helpful to them in any way whatsoever. <laughs> but as they began to listen to what we were saying and actually see the data that we had and see the data that we could actually make available to them, or make available to them for the first time in a machine-readable, easy-to-use form for entrepreneurs. Maybe the public formulas and PDFs, which aren't particularly useful um, to entrepreneurs, like Nicole, right? Um, as they saw what kind of data this was, like data on hospital quality and nursing home patient satisfaction and data on community health indicators, right? The entrepreneurs got very, very excited. They began to brainstorm all kinds of ideas of what they could do with this data, what new features and products they could build. And at the end of the day, in a fit of impromptu enthusiasm, uh, basically, I said to the entrepreneurs, I love your ideas, here's what we're going to do. We're going to actually make this data available and downloadable and machine readable. And if you can build a prototype of the idea you just brainstormed, in the next 90 days, 90 days from now, Institute of Medicine, and we will host a, I just made this name from somebody, Health Data Palooza, to showcase to the world what you built. And we weren't entirely sure what would happen next, but in 90 days, we did indeed hold our first ever Health Data Palooza, and 21 entrepreneurs came, finishing their coding in some cases at the last second, right? And showcased new products or product features they had built to help folks pick the right providers for them and their families, or to better understand the health of their communities, et cetera. And from that first health data pollutes onward, the Health Data Initiative grew and grew. More and more data became liberated by more and more data owners across government. More and more entrepreneurs and innovators grow into this growing array of data and build more and more new innovations, products, services, companies with it. Today, the health data palooza is one kind of, kind of signal about the strength of the ecosystem draws about 2,000 people every year to discuss new data being made available and blossoming uses of that data to help improve health and care. This has coincided with growing momentum behind value-based care. Uh, and you all could recite these developments chapter and verse, as many of you in this room, and really everyone in this room, right, has and will continue to be integral parts of those developments. Uh, developments like Medicare moving more and more into value-based care through the ACO program and other programs, more and more seniors moving into Medicare Advantage, Medicare Advantage plans increasingly moving into value-based partnerships with providers, which leads me to the latest part of my personal journey through value-based payment and care. I ended my tour of duty in public service in January 2017. Uh, I took a long vacation after that with my wife and my children to get to know them again, and then started another company with my brother, uh, Ed Park, a company called Devoted Help. Uh, Devoted is the company that Ed and I hope to be building for the next 30 years, knock on wood, God willing. It's a company whose mission is to dramatically improve health and care for seniors by taking care of everyone like they're literally family. So we have one prime directive, one standing order from me, including to myself, which is when doing anything and everything, when making any decisions, especially the hard ones, close your eyes, imagine the face of a member of your family you love desperately, and ask yourself, if this decision would impact her, what would we do? Then we open our eyes, check with compliance to make sure we're not about to do something illegal. <laughs> and if it's not illegal, then we do that thing, right? And what kind of healthcare would you want for your family, for your mother, your father, your grandma, your, your sister, your son, right? You'd want the best healthcare in the world. You wouldn't want average healthcare, or healthcare that's hopefully not terrible, right? You'd want the best healthcare in the world for your mom, which can be precisely defined as, one in this room can say this, right? Because this is what you do, right? Right care, right place, right time. The best healthcare in the world is the right care, including non-clinical care, 
delivered in the right place at the right time. And as everyone in this room knows, if you consistently get people the right care in the right place at the right time, it costs a lot less than the status quo, than the disorganized, confusing, uncoordinated, information-poor, reactive, non-stitching, time-making, non-prevention-oriented care, right, <laughs> that seniors get today. Devoto's goal is to get everyone this best care in the world, the right care in the right place at the right time, wrapped in a truly world-class consumer experience. And we're seeking to do so by providing seniors with a next-generation Medicare Advantage plan powered by new technology and closely partnered with the best healthcare providers. For anyone who's interested, I'd be happy to describe offline later the devoted approach in detail. But for the purpose of this keynote, let me say that at the core of our approach is partnering with the very best providers and truly empowering them to deliver the best possible care, the care that we all want our mom and dad to have. We want to be the opposite of the payers with whom we interacted as maternity care providers 20 years ago. We want to be the partner we wished we had been able to meet back then. Providers who are driving value best care forward, uh, deliver the right care in the right place at the right time, are our heroes. You, everyone in this room, is my hero. And if I had to characterize the state of value based community care right now as a movement, it would be momentum is growing, but success is by no means assured. And whether or not it succeeds or fails isn't up to people in ivory towers having fancy arguments, right? It's up to all of you. It's up to small bands of sisters and brothers on the ground who are actually making value-based care happen. Leaders like you who are doing the incredibly hard work day in and day out of making value-based care a reality, grinding it out, constantly learning, persisting through constant challenge and refusing to give up, getting knocked down and getting back up, getting knocked down and getting back up. If there's one characteristic I would ever optimize for in any change, it would be the inability to give up because you can't stand the idea of the world not having what you are building. And Florida, led by all of you, is an increasingly vital national epicenter for this work. The stakes that are powering what you are doing, what is at stake is not just the health of Floridians, it's the health of all Americans. Because I believe as Florida goes, so will America, right? If you blaze the trail, the rest of the country will follow. And there's so much vibrant experimentation and learning innovation happening here. It's like a nuclear reactor of awesome. And I believe that it's of fundamental importance to the future of value-based care in America to listen incredibly carefully. Listen. A lot of people in healthcare are not very good at listening. There's a lot of talking, but listening, right? To be incredibly good at listening to what all of you and your teams have to say. And for all of us through forums like FACOS, to share our learnings with each other, to grow our learning together in a networked, compounded way for the sake of this movement, for the sake of the country. So in that spirit, as opposed to talking at you for another 45 minutes, what I'd like to do in a metaphysical demonstration of the importance of what America needs to do is to call three of you on stage so that I can interview you, so that you can deliver this keynote. Right? To learn from you, your experiences, your thoughts, your challenges, your hopes, your dreams. So please, welcome to the stage, three brave souls who volunteered to do this with me. 
First is Rich Lucibella, CEO and Director of Accountable Care Options LLC. Rich earned a Master's in Health Science from Johns Hopkins and a Master's in Business Administration from the Wharton School. He began his career with what was called in the day HICFA uh, and was directly involved in the original Medicare HMO Risk Administrations. Rich has been active in South Florida Medicare Risk and shared savings programs since the mid-1980s. Since long before it was cool, he's the architect of Accountable Care Options exclusive primary care structure and shared savings distribution design that heavily rewards individual practice results. Accountable Care Options has received significant shared savings for 2012 through 2017 and has participated in, in MSSP tracks one and three uh, and has been active in the, the CMS NextGen ACO program since 2017. Rich's approach to the Triple AAA challenge focused on stepwise practice transformation from the bottom up, starting with primary care. However, he's a firm believer that there is no, very wise, there is no one-size-fits-all solution for our diverse industry and the success can only come from the sharing of ideas and experiences within and outside our ranks. So please join me in welcoming Rich. Next up, John Harkins is the Executive Director of Broward Guardian ACO located in South Florida. Broward Guardian is a collaboration between community-based physicians and Memorial Health System, a public health entity. Prior to joining Broward Guardian, John was the Florida Market VP for Aetna US Healthcare, where he was responsible for developing provider collaborations and value-based incentive models. He also served as CEO and COO for several regional Medicare Advantage health plans and as a contracted Medicare expert for the state of Florida. Broward Guardian operates uh, in southern Broward County and is comprised of approximately 60 PCPs, as well as the Memorial Healthcare System. Uh, Broward Guardian is a track three ACO and only participates in MSSP, has no commercial business. They have approximately 10,000 lives under management and have successfully generated savings for the past four years and are currently in a positive savings position for 2018. Uh, the physician owners of Broward Guardian are developing a primary care-only group called HealthStone, primary care partners, as a long-term strategy. Uh, HealthStone currently has seven physicians and 14 mid-levels under contract. Please welcome John. You guys come on stage. Last but definitely not least, Lewis Morganier. Liu has developed numerous successful companies in the healthcare industry over the past three decades as the co-founder, principal, and chief executive officer of Healthcare Development Partners, HDP. HDP has worked with clients in the development of 16 ACOs, 12 diagnostic imaging centers, 16 outpatient radiology and colony centers, comprehensive outpatient rehab centers, interventional radiology centers, ASCs, clinical research, urgent care centers, laser and cosmetic surgery centers, cardiology groups and cath labs, physical and respiratory therapy centers, pump care agencies, clinical trust management, sleep study centers, multi-specialty and single-specialty super agents, and large medical practice. Basically, Lou has done every single thing that's possible to do in healthcare. Please welcome Lou. Uh, Rich, Lewis, and John, welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, thanks for becoming the keynote. <laughs> um, and want to start by asking each of you um, about your and your organization's experience with IMS care. Uh, what each of you would consider to be the greatest accomplishments that you've been able to be part of uh, over uh, your journeys through the IMS care. So maybe we'll start with uh, Lewis. Sure. I've been involved with uh, the CCO movement since uh, 2011, uh, working very actively as the, the founding executive team of Palm Beach ACO, and the first known subintendent in the country. And uh, throughout um, the last roughly seven years, I've been involved with about 18 ACOs, primarily in Florida, um, actively managing seven ACOs over the last five performance payments. Um, very, very proud successful 
development of these ACOs where we've saved Medicare $456 million and we've received performance payments of $234 million. So we're very proud of, you know, of the success of the ACOs. Thank you. John, how about you? Uh, I think the, uh, the greatest satisfaction that, that I personally received was just being able to go into a market that was very fragmented and um, probably not as provider friendly as some of the other markets, a very high cost market, high utilizing market. And uh, we were able to bring physicians together um, who literally practiced across the street from each other, didn't even know each other's names. And um, I feel very uh, proud to know that now we have a very cohesive group where we're able to implement some of these strategies. Um, we have some you know, very distinct advantages in our, our network, our very closed network, um, that, that has contributed to our success. And you know, unfortunately, that's probably not the benefit that a lot of ACOs or these value-based models have. But I, I think given the dynamics in our particular market, you know, we were able to take advantage of that and uh, turn something positive. Well, in our case, um, we are primary care purists from the standpoint that that's the type of care um, we are looking for in our, our uh, families and our parents. Um, we want primary care physicians to really take control and reassume their, their rightful role. And so if I had to point to a success, it is um, the success we've had in bending that curve slightly uh, marginally on primary care docs. When you, when you get a primary care physician, an internist, to say, you know, you're right, I can manage this patient's diabetes and, and CHF at least as well as a host of, of other specialists um, and refer out when necessary. To the extent that we've, we've uh, changed that behavior just marginally, I consider that a huge success. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, uh, this is hard, right? This work is incredibly difficult. Um, what have been your greatest challenges and, and how have you overcome them? Or uh, if you haven't yet overcome them, like how are you attacking those challenges in an effort to, to win? And so let's go to the first one. Uh, wow. Um, God, I think our biggest challenge has been physician engagement, getting, getting physicians to not only understand the program, but just to open the emails, for instance. Just, just listen to us and, and, and um, let's see the email open rate. We're off um, running for care coordination and, and we're trying to manage home health costs and like that. And the, in the beginning, your primary care docs aren't even opening the email. So come for a free dinner and, and listen at that point. So how, how have um, we resolved that? and, and um, the answer I would give you in keeping with my recent history of hunting analogies, which you wouldn't know about, Terry remembers the pee-pee dance from last year, um, and you know, I'm reminded of Mel Gibson and, and the advice he gave to his two sons in The Patriot, aim small, miss small. And what, what I think he meant by that is just focus down with these primary care docs, focus down on a target communicate it, pull the trigger on it for your, for your ostensible solution to the problem and move to the next target. So whether it be just annual wellness visits for a year, just get them involved in that. So don't boil the that's, ocean. That's the biggest challenge. Correct. Do that <coughs> one thing. Do that. And that, that a, a confidence, I think, that also builds confidence that you can 
point, shoot, hit. Correct. And then build more. Correct. Um, I think what's interesting in our particular market, given our network, is uh, we have 10,000 beneficiaries under the MSSP, but we have over 50,000 MA risk. So there's really been an education that you know we had to get over that learning curve with our providers. I would say the majority of our providers in our network uh, really saw the Medicare fee-for-service population as a drain on their practice. Um, and they didn't see the revenues to kind of support the effort that they had to put into those patients. So the education from our part was really helping them understand that through value-based, you know, we were able to replicate some of those positive returns by really just implementing some of those same strategies that have been successful. And uh, they're starting to understand with a little more effort in this Medicare fee-for-service population, being a little more proactive, changing from that reactive type of medicine, um, they're able to be compensated, what I believe to be fairly. And the more engaged the providers are, the better compensated they are, the better outcomes we're going to have. So uh, by far, I think education has really been a focal point. So you asked the question about uh, the first two things that came to my mind. The first two words were physician engagement. Exactly what Rick said. Um, it's uh, very, very difficult to you know to get a group of doctors to all work together cohesively. Um, to uh, provide better health care while practicing medicine more efficiently. In fact, this is the time of the year, it is the season of where we have to carefully evaluate the practices. And last night, spending time on boards, you know, going through withdrawals of practices of non-performers, you know, and you know, that's like a big wake-up call for the other physicians. You know, when you stand there and say that, unfortunately, this practice lost a million dollars over the last couple of years, and is currently losing a million dollars, is projected with the new regional benchmarks to lose another million dollars, but yet they're taking a couple hundred thousand dollars off the table, you know, that's generated by the other physicians. It's just, it's really, you know, incredible, the, you know, the, the, the wanting to stay in the ACO even though they're losing, you know, it's just phenomenal. It's like, they think it's monopoly money. So um, I think that the solution to the biggest challenge is really the, the basics of accomplishing you know, getting these things done through and with other people. You know, it starts with the recruiting of the right physicians. I thought it was interesting, John mentioned to me that they select one out of every four physicians that they evaluate. Mm. That's a great way to start. Mm. You know, it's the program development of what you're going to be bringing out to the physicians for cost savings. Um, it's the analytics, the analytics, the analytics. You know, shout out to Derek and Blue Sky Analytics. I mean, you know, good analytics will talk to you. All you have to do is listen to it and to tell you exactly what you need to do and where your opportunities are and where to improve it. You know, so that's really the, the definition of management, you know, is getting things done through and with other people. And I'm blessed by having a really good team, a good executive team, you know, that's totally motivated, talented, skilled, you know, and goes the extra mile, you know, to get the physicians and their staff engaged in the programs, and I think that's why we're successful. Now, as you mentioned, uh, selection, right? Yes. So how did you pick the one that would be four to five? John, Well, again, my background is really on the MA risk side, and yeah. uh, I try to bring a lot of those principles from the MSO over to the ACO. And uh, the quickest way for the MSO to run deficits is to bring the wrong physicians um, who 
who maybe aren't willing to be as engaged, who aren't willing to embrace new ideas, and those deficits will you know, quickly compound and uh, eat up any surplus. So we try to take that same approach with the ACO. Um, our strategy was never to be the biggest ACO in the market. You know, and we don't have an every willing provider type of mentality. We want a very cohesive group and a very defined market where we're able to implement strategies and initiatives that, that can play out over time. Um, you know, it's always been my feeling, and there's ACOs that are doing it successfully, don't get me wrong, but at least the strategies I try to implement, um, I've got to have my physicians at least geographically on the same page and, you know, from a system and a, uh, I, I don't want to say sophistication, but when you work with providers who are already working in a risk environment, they understand some of those concepts, and you're asking them to really just apply those same concepts to a fee-for-service population, granted, there's differences in benefits, network design, you know, there's a lot of different limitations we have to work with, but the concept of managing the patient, engaging the patient, those are, those are you know, consistent throughout everyone. So we have to be selective in our market. It's interesting because you, you mentioned, as your first point of that, their willingness to engage, right? Their willingness to change. That's really interesting. Um, uh, how do you how do you detect that? Is it literally like you just put the proxy out there and whoever actually gets drawn to the back end? It's no, like it, so it's product. actually interesting. When we went to the market in the beginning, uh, you know, we had a very narrow window of opportunity to enroll physicians because we wanted to make that first contract period. So um, I actually, you know, working with Memorial and some of the other physicians, we knew which physicians in the market were already engaged in risk. You know, who could quickly embrace the idea and the concept. And those were the physicians that we targeted initially. Um, not to say there weren't other physicians that we brought in. You know, they, we saw the, the potential. Uh, but over the last uh, probably three years, we've disenrolled about, and I don't want to say terminated, but essentially we've terminated about 10 providers that were just low performing. And, um, you know, unfortunately, you know, we have limited resources, we have limited time. So we've got to be able to focus on those providers where we believe there is an opportunity. Um, have you all seen um, any evidence of the following phenomenon? Maybe too early, right? But there's a kind of a classic uh, technology adoption curve, right? Where you have early adopters go first, right? No one else wants to go. And then those early adopters start rocking it, right? Or whatever the new thing is. And then, then the middle of the market moves in. And then you've got the laggards who may never get there, right? But maybe they'll buy an iPhone too. Right? So um, are we still in the early adopter phase when it comes to like physicians? Right, or have you actually seen uh, any evidence that actually early adopters engage, they start delivering better care, want to do it, right, are making higher incomes, and then the more recalcitrant folks begin to move, or do you think we're still in the early adopters like trying to demonstrate diaprop for the middle to move? When it comes to doctors. I think when it comes to the physicians, um, it is an iterative process, which is a good consulting term for we don't know exactly what we're doing, but we're going to do it over and over again. So, so you move across them, and, and some are very, very engaged, okay? But they, they've already, from a shared savings standpoint, which is the game, they're, they're already fairly efficient. So they move up a notch. The guy who, who may not have been uh, really technolo technologically proficient if you just get him to move up marginally. So what you're trying to do is, is raise, raise all boats at the same time. Though some, some are always going to be a little bit lower, and then you go back and do it over again and over again. Yeah, I, I agree with Rich. You know, I, I've come to the realization there's two things that motivate physicians. 
money and fear. And uh, if I can show them how to make more money with their patients, they're willing to listen. But at the same time, we're completely transparent. So peer pressure plays a lot into that. Every physician knows what every other physician is, is contributing to the pot. So um, you, know, you see that dynamic play out because now we have a physician. Now we have physicians who actually reach out to other physicians you know, for ideas or advice. So we're starting to see that kind of sharing. Yeah, I agree with that as far as the motivators being money and also fear. And because of what we're doing right now on October 26th is the last day to uh, withdraw practices, um, that fear does work. I mean, you know, uh, we're getting phone calls today as a result of board meetings last night of doctors wanting to learn more about MRA scores and different things. I think which is interesting, Todd, is when you look at the first 20, 30, 40 ACOs that were developed, that they're the most successful ones in the country. Now, those initial ACOs, I mean, I probably went out to 40 to 60 recruiting sessions with physicians and groups of physicians. The early adopters are the ones that came in to the ACOs. And they're turning out to be the most successful ACOs in the country. They, they got it, they're, and they're moving forward. Interesting, interesting. Um, technology. So as an organization, from day one, we've been positioning ourselves to really start assuming Medicare risk when that model eventually rolls out. And um, you know whether it's the way we you know kind of developed our network or the technology that we've put behind it, it's always been with that anticipation. Um, you know, and, and personally, you know, I tell all the physicians, the first year we don't generate a savings in the Medicare Shared Savings Program. It's the last year we're in business. So you know, I just hope Medicare moves a little quicker. Historically, they do think very slowly, but we're anxious to move to that next step. Yeah, the, um, it's a trick question, really, um, because it's, it's a journey, not a destination, in, in my opinion. I mean, we started this journey within in our mind that we do this thing called ACOs as a lost leader to bring these docs into, into our MSO. That very quickly changed it, it being a journey of, of its own. And, and so I'm just enjoying I'm enjoying the ride um, to the extent that we can we can bend the cost curve, we can bend the behavior curve. We're always looking at opportunities, and I think, Lou, in your own way, you, you alluded to this. It, it may be, and both of you did, it may be Medicare Advantage down the road, um, it may be whatever, but as we, as we change the environment, the alternatives available to us change also, and so we have to, we have to be agile in that way. We've been guinea pigs for CMS. Track one, track one plus, track two, track three, next gen, now basic, now enhanced. All right, so we've all been the guinea pigs to see what works. What type of combination can you put together to actually incentivize physicians, particularly, as you said, which the primary care physicians that can really manage the patients to be able to work more efficiently, to think population value-based rather than fee-for-service. Um, as you as you as you look for the future, uh, what are each of your greatest fears, and what are your greatest hopes? Uh, well, the government likes to give us carrots. You know this wonderful ACO track one. You can you know if you save any money, you can have half of it. Wow, it sounds too good to be true, and it was a wonderful opportunity. Well, basically that went away. Now if you, you know, went down to 25%, if 
if you want to go no risk. Um, so they cut that in half. But they turned around and said, but if you go to risk, we'll give you 75% savings rate. Oh my God, so if I save $10 million, I would get 7.5 million rather than 5 million. I've just made 50% more. That's a tremendous opportunity. Okay, so let's look down the horizon. What is the chances of Medicare cutting that 75% down to 30% or 35%? So as I always say, make hay while the sun shines. You know, now is the time to take advantage of the opportunities that are right in front of us. I agree. I think the uncertainty is just, uh, it, we're working in a very flawed model that's constantly changing. Um, we know the longevity of the program isn't going to be there, so there's a lot of uncertainty around what's coming next. So when you look how politics plays into that, you know, aside from just the regular regulatory changes that we have to deal with on an ongoing basis, it's it's kind of what Rich said. You know, we've got to develop a model that's fluid. So whether we're managing risk with an MA partner, or we're managing Medicare risk, or we're still playing in the MSA SP world, fundamentally it's all the same ideas. You know, it's how do we deliver the best care, you know, in the most efficient manner, and compensate the providers accordingly. Um, you know, kind of not knowing exactly which direction it goes creates that uncertainty. But if we kind of prepare for whatever's coming in a general term, you know, I, I think we'll be okay. So your, your point really is that at the core of success in all these different models is delivery of great care. Yeah, it's just going back to fundamentals. Is uh, also cost reducing. And so regardless of how the formulas change, like if you have a chassis that does that, right, then you can actually generate Absolutely. awesomeness. My greatest fear is that myself and everybody in this room will allow their thought processes and their actions to be dictated by terminology. And John and I were talking about this earlier. I mean, anybody who's read Orwell understands that if you control the terminology, you control the groupthink, you control the thought process. And so we have the term shared savings invented by the government. Sometime around 2011, shared savings was defined to us as, well, we're going to determine how much that population will cost us. And if you come in below that amount, it's called shared savings. Well, I would submit that the, my biggest fear is that we refuse to stop using the word shared savings as of today to reflect what we earned. This organization did an average of 9% shared savings shared savings from 2012 to present. Well, I don't consider that shared savings. It was a performance payment based on something. Where I'm getting at is that the, unless the benchmarks are actually aligned with what CMS said was going to be the line between shared savings and shared loss and losses, you're not getting shared savings you're getting a performance payment. So if you didn't make it last year or the year before, don't think that you didn't accomplish what you set out to accomplish. You just weren't paid for it. There is a reason why 40% of the organization's shared savings programs in 2017 didn't get a check. It's because of the way the benchmarks are defined. It is, it is the way performance payments are defined. But you shouldn't, you shouldn't confuse that with shared savings. I think that Harvard proved a much larger percentage generated savings for the trust fund. You just didn't get paid for it. I just want to add one thing. Um, Rich and I, you know, we 
have a lot of similar opinions on how CMS conveniently defines things or kind of dictates the way the calculations go, but I'm very active in engaging CMS. I always write out my responses. Um, I try to push them back, and um, I encourage all of you to do the same because I get frustrated when I talk to other ACOs. We share a lot of ideas, but I feel like we're not doing anything about it. So I just encourage you on a side note to please engage CMS and try to get some of these changes that we want in place addressed. Fantastic. Uh, and just to close out, uh, what's the most important advice you would give to leaders seeking to move their organizations from volume to value? Be humble. Aim small, miss small. Yeah. I, I, I like that one. Um, <laughs> I think the, the, biggest, uh, the biggest thing that I could say is it, it's, it's the one size doesn't fit all. You know, we as executives have to take what we're given and the tools and the resources, the technology, the expertise, and try to come up with the best strategy for our population, for our providers and our market. And uh, that's really just being a sponge and trying to gather as much information and taking that back and trying to figure out how does that fit into what we want to do. So it's truly not one size fits all. Getting back to engagement, engagement of staff, engagement of physicians, engagement of physician staff, and I think as an organization to take advantage of the opportunities that we have right in front of us. Things are gonna change, but they're building blocks. We're gonna get bigger and better and be more fluid and be able to take advantage of the changes that are gonna be confronted. With that, thank you guys so thank much. You. Please thank join you. me in thanking. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.